we're going to be in Colossians uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And uh, you would think, because I'm only tackling three verses today, this is going to be like a 20-minute sermon. Uh, it isn't, because within these three verses is an absolute gold mine. And uh, here's how I want to organize our material today. There's really two points, and kind of like what David said last week, they're more like buckets. Uh, but within those points, there are a multiplicity of principles that I want to pull out for us. And let me give you the first of the buckets, and that will govern much of our time. And let me give it to you right up front. What Paul is going to talk about today is our standing before we met Jesus. Our standing before we met Jesus. That's where he's going to take us right here in verse 21. So let me go ahead and jump right into it since there's no time to waste. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, first two words there uh, are important because what they are showing us is that he is taking his argument and by that, I don't mean he's arguing, but he is structuring his logic today based on what he said last week. He talked about how God is reconciling all things to himself. That begins with creation, uh, and, or excuse me, it begins with, his, with us, and then it extends to creation and so on. And so now he's applying that same reconciliation idea specifically to these people. Okay, so God is doing that. He's doing that in you. He's doing that around the world. And guess what? He's got a lot of work to do. Okay, and that's what he's saying here in verse 21. Here's what it was like before you came into a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, it's also interesting the verbs that he use, uh, uses here too. Who once were. So he's talking about this is where you've come from. But this is not where you are, and it's certainly not where you're going. But let's drill down on where we've come from. Look at this. Alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. <laughs> now, the word alienated literally means estranged, cut off, separated. It's the same word that Paul uses over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, when he says this. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And if you were a graphically minded person and you wanted to draw something, this would be a picture almost like of the Grand Canyon. That over here on one side, or here we are in our sin, and here is God on the other side of this great fixed chasm in His infinite holiness, and there is no way to get across this great fixed chasm apart from the cross of Jesus. We are too alienated. We are too estranged. We are too separated. We are too cut off. And the problem with what so many of us ran into before we met Christ is we think that we can build our own bridge to cross that divide through all kinds of things that just won't work. Religion, self-effort, making a lot of money, getting a lot of counseling, which obviously we're for counseling, but in and of itself, it cannot help you to the point that you will be saved by it. The alienation is too great. The separation is too great. And Paul is saying, this is where you've come from. This is who you once were. 
But then he goes a little further and he says, hostile in mind. This literally means hateful, means to be enemies with God. And then he goes even further than that, and he says, doing evil deeds. This is the natural outworking of being alienated and hostile in mind. So to take all this in summary, what Paul is saying is something like this, that before we meet Jesus, we are all in a desperate spiritual condition. And you might say, Dustin, I agree, I believe it, I believed it for a long time. But why would Paul bring that up? Why would he even mention that in the midst of speaking to these Colossians? Well, part of the reason why is because I think he wants something to happen in their hearts. And we'll unpack that a little bit more in, the, in a minute. But I think he wants the same thing to happen in our hearts. And you don't get that You don't get the release, the freedom, the gratitude for the gospel unless we thoroughly understand just how bad of a predicament we were in before the gospel came along. So Paul spent a minute on it. Let me spend a minute on it. I want to widen the circle, the locus here, from what Paul was saying into the rest of the canon. And the Bible talks about this in at least three different ways. One way to think about it is that We were sinners by birth, we were sinners by choice, and it's even worse than we actually realize. Let me say just this about it. Sinners by birth, Romans 5.12, this talks about original sin. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Adam's evil deed in the garden contaminated all of us, gave us spiritual cancer that is spread to all people and affects us all. But then you also think, Matthew 22, 37 through 39, this is when Jesus is saying that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's not a single one of us in here that can do that apart from the work of Christ within us. So we're sinners by birth, we're sinners by choice. And then also, There's one little passage in the Old Testament that really captures just how bad this is. This is Psalm 51, 1 and 2. And David is saying this. He's saying, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And so what he's alluding to there is that the predicament in which we find ourselves, in David's words here, sin is so bad he needed multiple words to talk about it. And those words that he used there, uh, one of them meant to be twisted out of shape. It's like a uh, shoulder wrenched out of socket. Another one means to miss the mark. And another one speaks of willful rebellion against God. So let's go back to what Paul is saying here. Colossians, people today at Refuge Church, this was the hole you were in. This was the chasm that you faced. This was the difficulty that you could never resolve. And here's why I want to keep making even a little more hay on this. Because we live in a culture that disembraces this in every single way that it can. Oh, well, you're not responsible for your choices. 
Well, that's your upbringing. Oh, well, it doesn't really matter that you stole that. Well, you know, that was just a inappropriate, you, made, you chose the wrong path in that moment. And everywhere we turn, our culture minimizes the concept of sin to the point that even people like us that know and love Jesus don't take it very seriously. This is the oxygen in which we all breathe. And let me go ahead and front load this here at the beginning. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. There's, there's no value in that. But here's where I am pushing, and I'll tell you where I'm going with this up front. I want us to walk away from this message, from this section of the text, with a greater sense of gratitude for what Jesus has done. That's part of what I think Paul is getting at here. Why else would he bring it up? Because he wants their hearts to be warmed. Let me give you one other image of how we usually think about this. We like to think that spiritually we're kind of like a fixer-upper. We got that picture? That we're just in a place. It may, oh, there we go. Yeah, we're, we're kind of like the kitchen on this side, and we just need a little bit of Jesus' help to get to be the kitchen on that side. But here's the factual reality for all of us before we meet Christ. It's more like this second picture. We are not a house in need of renovation. We are a house in need of resurrection. We don't need renovation. We need resurrection. We cannot build the bridge across. We cannot lipstick rehab our kitchen. We need Jesus, and we have him if our faith and trust is in him. We were not just debilitated, we were dead. We were alienated. We were hostile in mind. We were doing evil deeds. And here's what I hope is happening for us now. That when we really look that in the face, we begin to see just how precious Jesus is that we begin to experience just how needful what Jesus did really was. Because here's what I know. How well we understand our alienation from God determines how much we appreciate our reconciliation to God. Let me say that again. How well we understand our alienation from God determines how much we appreciate our reconciliation to God. And that's where Paul goes in verse 22. Take a look at it. Second bucket that he's going to fill for us here is our status after we meet Jesus. Now look at this. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, and then we'll unpack what that is. But that verb that I want to point out there shows us that something decisive has taken place. That what was once true of us, alienated, hustling mind, doing evil deeds, that will never be true again. This is a final change that God has made. If you are in Christ today, it doesn't matter what you did, it doesn't matter how you feel, you have been reconciled to God. 
And friends, that is going to be very, very important in all of our lives because there's going to be moments when we're not feeling it. There's going to be moments when we sin so grievously that we wonder if it's even true. There's going to be moments where we feel alienated from God and we got to go back to this truth. He has now reconciled, past tense, us through his body of flesh. Now, let's talk about this idea here about the body of flesh. I think, as do others, that it's likely a counter to some specific false teaching about Jesus. Remember, all this is given in context, right? This is not Paul just spewing things. He's particularly or he's speaking to particular issues in the Colossian context. And one of the things that they were really being inundated with was this fake view about Jesus, and also a fake view of the physical body. And that, that, that redemption could not be accomplished through Christ because he couldn't do it. He had a physical body. And remember what they were offering, this fake gospel, was passwords and spiritual practices and this esoteric nonsense. And so they were trying to steer them toward their product and away from the actual article. And what Paul is saying by pointing this out, I think, is that the literal physical death of Jesus actually matters. It actually matters. And you might say, well, Dustin, of course. I would want you to know that there are people today that call themselves Christians, that write books, that speak at conferences, that do not believe in the literal, physical death and resurrection of Jesus. It's scandalous, but it's true. And the thought here is that we need to understand what has been accomplished for us. Why would someone have to die? Well, let's go back to what we learned there a little bit a few minutes ago. If you don't think sin is a big deal, and you just need a little renovation and not a resurrection, well, I guess people don't have to die. But if you understand that we're sinners by birth, we're sinners by choice, and then it's worse than we think, so bad that David has to use three different words to talk about it, then now you begin to see why someone would have to die for your sin. Remember their false nonsense? It's not that bad. Use these passwords. Paul says it is that bad. Use this Jesus. Let me give it to you like this in a principle. Our sin is such a serious offense that somebody has to pay for it. Let me give you this illustration. Let's say you come into, through inheritance or theft from a museum, a Ming Dynasty vase, maybe one that looks kind of like this. <clears throat> you put it on the coffee table. I don't know why you would, but let's say you did. And I come over, and I bring my dog. Rooney. He is precious. Those of you who know him know that he has almost human eyes. He looks into your soul. Precious animal. But I tell you what, that dog's tail is a lethal weapon. And he comes sauntering over, and he gives you some love, and now you're all dripping. And through the tail wagging, he takes your Ming vase, and he splatters it across the floor. There is no way to glue it back together. There is no way hardly even to keep the pieces. They are shattered. If that thing was worth $25 million, 
you might love my dog, but you are going to want to be reimbursed. Someone has to pay for that broken vase. That's what Jesus did. Because the holiness of God had been offended. The chasm between us was so great, it didn't call for simply renovation or to Jesus or for or for Jesus to come along and top off our spiritual tank that maybe we are 92% there on saving ourselves, and then he comes in and says, oh, well, they're working hard. Here's the 8%. There are some people that teach that. That's actually out there, that Jesus just kind of tops off your effort. It's not like that. The vase is broken, and the only way it can be fixed is through the miracle of redemption. And Jesus accomplished that through his literal physical death. So to those who would say, Jesus' passion events were just an example, I would say that is wrong. He didn't come to offer simply an example. He came to make a payment. And the payment was for us and for our redemption and for our sin, and that is a payment in full. And again, Dustin, why would we belabor these points that we already believe? Here's why. Because the more we understand our alienation, the more we appreciate our reconciliation. And let me go a step further and say this. The higher your view of God and the lower your view of sin, the bigger the cross gets to you. You see what I'm doing there graphically? The higher your view of God and the more wicked and evil your view of sin becomes, the bigger the cross gets. And you don't ever get over this. You don't ever one day wake up and go, I have laid hold of the holiness of God. No, we have sort of laid hold of the holiness of God. We have sort of laid hold of the depth of sin. And one day we'll get it fully. But where Paul wants to go now is he wants to show us why well, a part of the purpose of this. Look at the rest of verse 22. Talked about reconciliation. And he says, in order, so this is the indication of a purpose clause. This is part of why this is happening. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, to present you, to set you forth. We understand presentation. Uh, my oldest just recently graduated. He was presented with his diploma. Big deal. We will be presented to God through Christ in a certain format. And that format is holy and blameless and above reproach. So God saw us in our alienation. He reconciles us for the purpose of presenting us as holy and blameless. And here's part of what's interesting about how Paul uh, talks about this. And I'm not the only one who thinks about thinks this. There's a tension here of presentation at the end of time and also holiness in this life. Okay? Uh, and let me give you a little help here from a guy named F.F. Bruce. He says it like this. There's a balance between the present and the future. 
And what happens when we are justified, that's when God looks at us and declares us judicially righteous based on what He has done, not based on what we've done. That happens in this life, right? Like when we become Christians, we are justified. But there is another justification coming. Maybe you want to call it final justification. Way out there in the future, someday. It's really not two separate things. It's really just one thing that starts here and ends there. It's kind of like Jesus' kingdom. It has broken in, but clearly it is not fully established. That, that's, what, that's what he's talking about here. And so I think Paul is kind of operating on multiple levels here of talking about that day and talking about this day. And so practically, when you shake that out, here's the principle. The purpose of our reconciliation is our holiness, both now and in the future. Now, what does that look like practically? Well, I think that means that we look to that day for comfort and inspiration and help and courage and freedom in this day. And part of what the Holy Spirit does for us through sermons like this, when we really get into the nitty-gritty of the gospel, that's what we're doing today. If you feel like you're like, whoa, that's because you're getting what Paul is trying to tell us. But we need to get that positional holiness that we have at work in our practical holiness. Okay? So that day informs this day. That day pulls us in this day. And so when we think about this, there's a multiplicity of uh, applications here. But one of them, let's just, let's just grab the Christian identity one right here. That means that one of the reasons why ongoing, persistent, perpetual sin doesn't make sense in the life of a Christian is because that's not who we are anymore. Whatever your thing is, you would pick whatever addiction, and they come in all flavors and sizes. Part of the reason why that doesn't make sense for someone who's in Christ is because that was a function of the alienation, of the separation. That, that, that's tied to who you once were, not who you now are. And you might say, but Dustin, I'm, I'm in an addiction right now. Sure, lots of Christians are. But what I'm saying to you is, there is a way out. There is a way through. Jesus is your hope. Does that mean he's not going to work through means and programs and steps? and all? Oh, absolutely. He uses all kinds of things. But what I'm saying to you is, you don't have to stay in that darkness because the light has come for you. And I talk about this regularly here. Because here's what I know. There are so many levels of trouble. Some are very serious. Some are not very serious yet, but they're on the path. Some are just kind of whatever. I want to create a culture regularly where people feel able to bring their darkness into the light and ask for help from other strugglers who've got their own problems and we walk together. This church is not a museum for perfect Christians. 
It is a hospital for wounded saints. That's what it is. And so when we think about this, that our ultimate end is holiness, blamelessness, to be above reproach before him, we want to get that going today as much as we can. And we need each other for that. We need teaching like this for that. We need men's groups and women's groups and community groups and podcasts and books. We need all those things so that that positional becomes practical as much as possible. So let me pause and ask us what could be a hard question here. Now that you know what you once were, a little bit of who you now are, and you see how certain behaviors are inconsistent with who you now are, is there anything that the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the Word, is shining a spotlight on in this moment to call you from the darkness into the light? Oh, friend, whatever it is, get the help you need, whatever it is. Maybe it's as simple as just talking to your spouse. Maybe you need to talk to the community group. Maybe you need to get a counselor. I recommend people all the time that are seeking to get help. It's a beautiful thing. Whatever it is the Spirit's pointing out, let us help you any way that we can. Now, let me also say this. Uh, not as much time on this, and then we've got one more verse. But there's always a tension when we talk about this kind of stuff because you want to paint the target that the text paints. Part of the reason for our reconciliation is holiness. It just is. It's not negotiable. It's not discussable. It is. And at the same time, when the conviction wells up within us, the goal is always not to get people into guilt, that's not going to help them, but to get people into grace. So after today, when some of these conversations do begin to happen and somebody may come to you and confess their sin to you, that means that the word is working if that's what happens, for all of our sake and for the good of their spiritual journey and yours, quite frankly, as best you can, listen without judgment. And point them to Christ. And help them along. Because though you may be the receiver of the tough news on this day, it might be you in three months. So what I'm saying there for us as a community is let's handle each other with grace. And let's shepherd each other with grace in this day as we go toward that day. Now, one final verse that I want to tackle here, and this one actually needs a little untangling too. Look at verse 23. It says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, let's Park the bus right here and talk about that first phrase. If you, in, uh, if you, if indeed, there we go, you continue in the faith. And there is a little debate uh, about what Paul is saying here and, and how he's saying it. Um, most of us, if you were raised, raised in a certain type of tradition, you might read it like this. So all these things are true. If 
indeed, you continue in the faith, you know, with skepticism and eyebrows and high tone of voice, right? I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Now, is he saying that we have to continue in the faith? Yes, okay? But he's not saying it that way. And that distinction matters. Because if you get this wrong, then your entire life, you're on the performance treadmill of like, got to work hard, got to serve God, got to pray more, got to have more faith. Because if I don't, I'm going to hell. There are plenty of Christians that live that way under this weight of guilt that this text does not support. At the same time, there are some people that will take a text like this and go, that means I can do whatever I want, dude. Woo! Kegger at my house in the name of Jesus. That's wrong. And Paul dispenses with that nonsense in Romans 6, for example. Should we sin so that grace would abound? Uh, the language he uses there is actually very strong, but we'll call it God forbid, okay? But it's actually a little stronger than that in, in our English vernacular. So it's not performance treadmill, and it's also not do what you want because you're saved. The answer is more like this. What I think Paul is saying is he is laying out for them, you, you got to continue in the faith. And he's saying it in such a way through the Greek that it assumes that they will. That it's, a, it's an encouragement. Hey, continue in the faith, but man, you're going to do it. And I can't help but think that that wouldn't have been so encouraging to some of these people that would have been listening to all this false teaching garbage and been like, oh my gosh, am I going to fall off the wagon and believe this damnable heresy? And I can't help but think that there wouldn't have been some, some Christians there that would have been so heartened to know that Paul was assuming that God has got them and he's going to get them to glory. But let me also say this. If you want to spin this out, what he's really talking about here is he's talking about, uh, and like I said, there's a tension. He is saying you, you must continue in the faith, but also we can't hear that without hearing the doctrine here um, of eternal security or perseverance of the saints. That's what the Reformers called it. So the principle here is this, that all who have truly turned from sin and trusted in Christ will persevere in the faith. But the emphasis here, you need to know this, it, it's not on you, it's on God. And let me give you a couple of texts to remind you of this. Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated for all for my or hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved okay so that's that's exactly what paul is saying there but then look at this john 10 27 28 my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me i give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand no one you know what that means in the Greek? It means no one. It means that no one can come snatch you from Jesus if you really belong to Jesus. So the real million-dollar question here is, do you really belong to Jesus? You want, you want to have the eternal security conversation? The starting point is, are you truly born again? Are you truly in Christ? 
Well, what does that mean? Well, what are you counting on to take you to heaven? Are you trying to work your way there? Or do you realize that your works won't work and only the work of Jesus, credit on your account, works? That's it. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe he was just a good teacher? Or do you believe that he was the son of God who was perfect in every way, who died as substitutes death for you so that you could become friends with God? That's where this conversation starts. And if you're shaky on that or you're not sure where you stand with that, friends, in just a bit when we take communion, let's talk about that. Because we need to hear this kind of passage and be moved toward the gospel, whether we're a believer or an unbeliever. That's the desired end of a text like this, is that we would appreciate Jesus in every possible way. But let me go back to this here. So what is our responsibility in doing what Paul said? Let's use his language. Continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast, which means founded securely. It's the same thing, the kind of idea when Jesus said, build your house on the rock and not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. What's, what's your responsibility in that? It's to do what you're doing. It's to put yourself under faithful teaching. It's to get to know Jesus through the spiritual disciplines. It is to link up and walk with other Christians. It's all the things that go into being a Christian, right? But you're not doing those alone. Paul's going to get into this later. We preached through Philippians here at one point. You can go grab it off the internet. It is that we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do you see that? That like we do some things, but guess what? We do them because God's doing them through us. We do stay on the path, but guess what? It's because God is keeping us on the path. We do Endure in the faith, but guess what? It's because God is causing us to endure in the faith. And let me tell you this. I don't have a ton of confidence in myself to keep myself continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, but I have complete confidence that God can do that. So some of us this morning, you come in here, and you need to hear a little bit of this, like, man, I need to stay on the path. But most people, most people need to be reminded that every time you fall off the path, the gentle shepherd is behind you, and he steps in, and he says, oh, I got you. Oh, you're about to fall. I got you. I got you. And he is keeping us going. So those Colossians would have been encouraged, and we need to be encouraged. God will keep all those he calls. Let me close with this illustration today. And it deals with this thought of alienation. Ernest Hemingway tells the story of a man named Paco in Madrid. And apparently Paco was a very common name at the time when he was writing a lot of Pacos running around. And apparently, one Paco in particular had somehow gone from being quite close to his father to having some kind of falling out and being so alienated that they didn't even speak. 
He left home. He cut ties. Father didn't even know how to get in touch with Faco. But he had this idea. And he said, I'm going to place an ad in the paper. And here's what it said. It said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Madrid on Tuesday at noon. All is forgiven. Come home. And on that Tuesday at noon, the police had to be established, drawn together, dispatched, because there were 800 Pacos that showed up to be reconciled to their father. Friends, are we not all Paco? Were we not all alienated and separated from our father? And did God not do something far better than putting an ad in a paper to bring us home, to reconcile us to himself? He gave us Jesus, who lived for us, who died for us, who rose again for us, and he now says, come home, don't be estranged. Don't be alienated. Don't be hostile in mind. Come to me, be reconciled. That day is going to help you this day, and I'm going to help keep you on the path. Friends, if we hear the gospel from this passage, our view of God gets higher, our view of sin gets lower, the cross gets bigger to us, and our hearts are filled with almost unspeakable gratitude. Oh, friend, where do you most need that good news today? If you're a Christian, what is God using to help you from this passage? If you're not yet a Christian, we want to help you today. Wherever we are, let's go before the Lord and ask for what only He can do in response to this word. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are thankful for this passage, for you calling Paul a wonderful example of someone who was alienated and hostile in minds and doing plenty of evil deeds to be reconciled and then become an agent of reconciliation for those early Colossians and for us today. Lord, thank you for this passage. Please use it greatly in our lives and in our group conversations and conversations around fire pits and shape us and change us for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.